And if you would now uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, and I'm going to read uh, John chapter 2, verses 20, verse 23, through John 3, 3. But I don't want you to get the wrong impression. We will not get to John chapter 3. <laughs> but uh, let's, let's turn uh, to, the, to the gospel. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of Scripture, for the light that it sheds upon the divinity of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the light that it sheds on his omniscience. He is all-knowing. We thank you for the light that it sheds on our fallenness, Lord, and on the corruption that exists in the heart of men. Help us, Lord, not to be blinded by religiosity. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to feel. Lord, these things truly, authentically. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And now, uh, last week, we saw that Jesus comes to establish a new temple. And in John's, John chapter 3 and chapter 4, we'll see that in chapter 3, he comes to give new life. And he comes to, in chapter 4, establish new worship. New worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. And here, a life from above. And in verse 2, a temple that is his body. John chapter 2, um, I, I, most of you probably know this, but you know the verses in our Bible or these are not inspired, right? So really, John, what we have is John chapter 2, verse 23, is the introduction 
to chapters 3 and 4, where what Jesus does is he, sh- he puts on display his ability to know the hearts of men. So he's having a conversation with Nicodemus, and he knows Nicodemus better than Nicodemus could ever imagine. And then with the woman at the well, he knows the woman. Go get your husband. He knows her. You see? And now what John is doing, John the author, inspired by the Spirit, what he's doing is he's really setting up these two chapters for us. This is what I'm going to... Now, John, as a good writer, what he does is, okay, Jesus comes as the Messiah to reinstitute or to inaugurate a new way of worshiping God. He comes to cleanse the temple of its leaven and to point the people to the right way to come to God. It's no longer temple worship. It will be the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrificial system, and all of those things will be abolished when the Son of Man rises from the dead. And he's crucified and when he rises. And now, Jesus is going to interact, he's going to enter into an inter- with a religious leader. With one whom was wise in the eyes of men and who thought he knew many things. And Jesus will explain to him, no, you need a life from above. And with the woman in Samaria who worshipped in one place and the Jews worshipped in another place, Jesus says, no, there is going to be a new way of worship, worship that is in spirit and in truth. So Jesus comes now. So, excuse me, so John is writing to us now, and he's really, he's framing these few chapters that we're going to read. Note the three references here. He says, now when he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover, during the feast, place, the time, and the occasion. He gives us those three things. But then he's very general about what happens. Listen to what he says. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he did. What John is drawing our attention to, of course, is Jesus is there in Jerusalem, the center of the theocracy. This was the place where the religious people were. This is where the holy people were, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the priests. This is where the holy people were, the center of the theocracy, and he's there. But it's not any time of the year, it's the Passover, when the center of the theocracy would have been filled with people. Travelers from all over the place would have come in for the Passover, this was one of those feasts where all of the, male, the males, they had to come. So the, so the place is packed, filled with people. So not only just the folks who maybe live in the region are there, but it's just filled. Some estimate millions would have been present during this time of the year. And then a particular occasion. The occasion is during the feast. 
during the period when the Paschal ceremonies are taking place. The Passover lamb, right? Paschal, Passover lamb. So it's a very solemn time. There's not a lot going on. There's not, you know, trumpets playing and people dancing. No, it's a very solemn time. And it's just packed full of people. John is drawing our attention to this, and he's going to help us see by doing this that most people see the wrong thing in Jesus. That's his point. And these were, these were the religious people. These weren't the Greeks. These weren't pagans, right? The, 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 these were the people who had the right form of worship and they had the right calendar and the holidays and the sacrifices and the locations and all the smells and the bells that were associated with Old Testament worship. They had it all. But they were blind. So then he gives us this statement. Many believe. Many out of this mass. That should not, um, let's say, uh, um, uh, uh, a couple of the guys from uh, Christ the King went to New Paltz, preached the gospel, and many believed. We would, yeah! But this is not a yeah moment. This is a not everybody. Every, these were, it's, it's the theocracy, and here's the king. It's the Passover, and here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They're practicing a solemn ceremony to celebrate their deliverance, and here is their deliverer. And they all don't believe? All should have believed and in believing, they would have had life. What, what John focuses on here is the quality of their faith now. He's gonna, here's the quality. So what kind of, of faith is it? Many believed in his name. And, and that's, that's, that's important. By believing in his name, um, maybe a reference to him being the Messiah. Look at what Nicodemus says in verse 2. He says, Rabbi, which is an exalted title. Jesus is going to call Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. You are the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? And the teacher of Israel, comes to Jesus and he calls him a rabbi, teacher. There's no, and there does not appear to be any guile in uh, Nicodemus' interaction with Jesus. Like he's not a typical Pharisee who's asking questions to try to catch Jesus in a lie. There's some honesty and earnestness in Nicodemus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, you know, if all of us, 
If all of us, if, if we hear people say this, we think to ourselves, oh, this person is probably converted. Wow, that's like really good. I'm, I'm including me in this. If people talk like this, I begin to think to myself, oh, it might be a brother or a sister. But Jesus knows the heart. Jesus knows the heart. So they believed in his name. He's a, maybe, maybe to take just the, 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 you know, the language here. Because you see the connection, right? You saw how I emphasized man in this passage. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, for he knew what was in all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees. And then the man comes and confesses something to Jesus. He testifies. We think you're a teacher. Oh, I, I, Jesus could have said, I knew that. I knew what you were thinking. He does it with Nathaniel, just a chapter before. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. With the Samaritan woman, as I said, he's going he's gonna to talk to her also. And he's going to say, go get your husband. And she's going to say, oh, I don't have one. Or you're, you're right, you don't have one. You got a bunch of them. And the person you're living with now is not your husband. He knows what's in man. So they believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. This was their, their response to Jesus. Many out of the mass believed, but the quality of faith was not authentic. The way or the reason you come to Christ matters. You see, if you just come to Jesus, let's say you had some traumatic life experience, right? And you come to Jesus because of that to fix my traumatic life experience. Lord Jesus, fix my marriage, fix my kids, fix my body, fix, and I mean, you know, like let's say you have some cancer or some terminally ill disease and you come to Jesus, Lord Jesus, heal me of this, fix this problem, fix all of these issues. God, I need a miracle, help me. You're coming to Jesus for the wrong reason. Their faith was not inward and authentic. It was external and superficial. They believed in his name when they saw the sign. Calvin writes, This was not a pretended faith by which they wished to gain a reputation among men. This is the tricky part, right? Because they believed. Nicodemus believed that he was sent from God, right? Those are Nicodemus' words. And Jesus tells him, you must be born again, Nicodemus. He doesn't say to Nicodemus, oh, you're converted. You, can't, you think I came from God. You're, you're, you're a Christian. You're in the kingdom. He says, you can't see the kingdom of You're blind spiritually, Nicodemus. You think you see. You don't see. This was not a pretended faith by which they wished to gain reputation among men, for they were convinced that Christ was some great prophet. And perhaps they had even ascribed to him the honor of being the Messiah. 
of whom there was at that time a strong general expectation. But as they did not understand the peculiar office of the Messiah, their faith was absurd because it was exclusively directed to the world and earthly things. It was also a cold belief and unaccompanied by the true feelings of the heart. You, you, even, for, even for men, right? And this is ridiculous, you know, sometimes you have to say stuff like this about men. But, you know, men will tend to feel uncomfortable speaking about loving Jesus. And I don't mean like in a really cheesy, cheap way, like with an I love Jesus shirt. I don't, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the, the, what is the guiding principle of your life. I was dead in trespasses and sins, and I would have gone to hell forever. But Jesus offered his perfect life for mine and hung on the cross to bear God's wrath so that I could be delivered. I love him. Right? It's an effect of the heart, and then it moves the will. And then, and then there's a willingness to, to do whatever is necessary to live a life that's pleasing to him. For hypocrites assent to the gospel, not that they may devote themselves in obedience to Christ, nor that with sincere piety they may follow Christ when he calls them, but because they do not venture to reject entirely the truth which they have known, especially when they can find no reason for opposing it. You see that? So kids grow up in a Christian home. And, you know, let's say mom and dad, let's say they're both Christians or just mom or just dad, right? Christian. And the kids grow up in a Christian house and you have them read the Bible and you pray with them and you pray for them. But they've not really come to Christ. But they don't have a reason. Because they see, you know, um, I don't love him. But they do. And it seems like the whole thing is real. So I can't just reject it. But there's no heart attached to it. For as they do not voluntarily of their own accord make war with God, so when they perceive this doctrine is opposed to their flesh and to their perverse desires, they are immediately offended. Right? So, you know, the, the kids that grew up in the Christian home or maybe those people that you know that grew up going to church with you or to other churches but they live churchy lives it's it's you know they're not out here you know supporting abortion and living crazy and they're not doing that but when a point of doctrine so affects them that they must change there must be repentance you know what they do oh that's that's the, those people over there that's they're legalistic that's what it is. That's, that's legalism. Oh, I don't want any of that. No, you don't love God. You don't want any of God. 
so you're not willing to do those things that God calls you to do. That's the issue. They are immediately offended, or at least withdraw from the faith which they had already embraced. See, this is a difference between intellectual belief and saving faith. If you're a rational person, right? If you're a rational person and you look at the evidence, most people who do that, who look at the evidence, they say, well, there has to be a God. They're not converted. Those people go to hell. You see, deism, general deism, doesn't lead anybody to heaven. Let me illustrate this point. So you have it in Nicodemus, but in Nicodemus it's kind of subtle. And you might be thinking to yourself, no, I think Nicodemus is converted, and I'm, I'm going to show that that's not what John and Jesus and God is teaching in John chapter 3. That he becomes converted later is a different discussion. I think that's true. But at this point, he is not a Christian man. But at a, there's, a point in the, there's a place in the Bible where it's more dr- dramatic. Look at Acts chapter 8. In verse 13. Acts chapter 8 and verse 13. Then Simon himself also believed when he saw, excuse me, uh, yes, when he was baptized, he continued, uh, excuse me, then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. It's awesome, right? Wow. We even baptized this dude. Like he's legit a member of the church. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them and that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands-on, may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound in iniquity. Simon was going to hell. He was on the first bus there. And he was baptized, and he saw, and he believed, and he sees the power of the Spirit working through the apostles, and he's just taken back by this. And he's like, oh, I want that. Here's some money. Give it to me. And Peter sees and says, you're lost and on your way to hell, and you're enraptured by pride 
and you have to be freed from it, pray that God would grant you life. You, you know, by, so these are hard sermons to preach. Right? The reason they're hard sermons to preach is because I know there are people here who are Christians who maybe uh, they struggle with their assurance. And you hear these things and you're like, man, I'm not converted. But for those of you who are in that position, I would tell you, continue to trust in the Lord. Because we have to preach these sermons because there are people who are sitting, and I'm not a fool, there are people who, and I don't know who, who they are, but there are people who are sitting here today who are not Christians who believe they are, and they have to hear this. They have to. Because Jesus taught this. And the Bible makes it explicitly clear. And don't think that you are nicer than God. Like, oh, I would never say that. That is ungracious and uncharitable that you would be unwilling to talk to someone who's dead in trespasses and sins and say to them, no, I know you. You must be born again. You need a new heart. You're not kinder than God. So Jesus continues. We saw this illustrated. You can see it with Nicodemus, but then you see it there in the book of Acts. Acts 8.13 illustrates this point. You see, for there to be saving saving faith, three things are required. There is knowledge of the truth of the gospel. People must know the truth of the gospel. You must know it. So there are facts. Uh, I'm a sinner. God is holy. He will judge me if I don't have a Savior. Who's the Savior? Jesus is the perfect Savior. He can ransom me from all of my sin. He can redeem me if I believe in Him. So there are propositions, things that are revealed in the Word of God that by hearing, by reading, and by meditating, these truths are used by the Spirit to impart life. And all these people are seeing as signs. The second is not only hearing, but agreeing with these things. What people would say is assent. It's assenting to the truths. Right? Those, are, those, those are truths. Yes, I believe I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I, I must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only Savior that God has sent into the world. And I believe it. I agree with those things. You agree with the truths. And then there is an act of the will. As one author puts it, the will closes with Christ as an adequate Savior. For it receives Him. It accepts Him. It relies on Him as its Savior. And is moved by the affections of love, desire, hope, rejoicing in Him. Internally. And then the will is commanded outwardly into an obedience to Him. So, uh, Faith is not like an abstract thing. Biblical faith is not like this weird, abstract, strange, oh, I, I have faith. Well, tell me what it is. Well, I, you know, I really can't tell you. It's, it's something between me and God. That's nonsense. 
You must know particular truths. You must believe particular truths. And you must live in light of those particular truths. You must believe in the Son of God. You must not only believe in the Son of God, but you must agree with what the Son of God says, and you must live in light of what the Son of God says. Then John writes, Many believed in his name when he saw the signs which he did. And we don't have any signs recorded here. Just like the main many is, a, is vague, he also does this on purpose, the many signs that he does. But remember that in John 21, 25, John himself says that there are also many other things which Jesus did. If everyone was written, the world itself, I think, would not be able to contain the books that should be written. So we're not told what they are, but he did some signs. And Nicodemus himself affirms it. Right here in uh, chapter 3, verse 2, we know that you are a teacher sent from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, this is another reason why there are two temple cleansings, because at the second temple cleansing, he does no signs. He does them here. Now, listen to what John says. And this is interesting, right? This is interesting because... This is John's commentary. This is, this is, um, this is John's commentary. So the, the first point then, the way or the reason you come to Christ, the reason for your reason for believing matters. It matters. And faith has to be genuine. And those three points that I made. But now this is John's comment. John is the one who's saying this. John says, but he did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. I, so when I, you know, literally this passage says this, but Jesus did not believe them. That word commit is the same word for believe. So they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in their belief. He knew. Same, same, same Greek word here. Jesus did not believe in them. He did not believe in their belief because he doesn't stop at externals. We can't. I can't see the heart of any person. My, you know, my uh, my wife. I don't know what she's thinking. <laughs> like I don't know what she's thinking. I have no idea what she's thinking. My children. I don't know what's going on in their mind and what they're feeling, and I don't know. And they're the closest people to me. Let alone if you begin to take steps outward, right? And I don't even, you know, I've never shared a meal with you. You've never been in my house. We've never talked face-to-face or privately. I don't know you. But Jesus knows all people. He knows all men. It doesn't matter that I don't know you because if I'm preaching this word, the Spirit will use this word to pierce deep into your heart. Remember what the author to the book of Hebrews says. The word of God is sharp like a sword and it pierces like a dagger. 
So I'll just let the word of God weigh upon you because I don't ultimately know. But there was something that John saw because this is John's commentary. The way that Jesus might have interacted with these these people was different than he interacted with his disciples. And he does this often. So he's walking with a crowd and he turns away with his disciples. Okay, I'm just going to talk to you guys now. And even in the Gospel of John, after chapter 13, he's just talking to his disciples. He's, there's a very true sense where he's not showing interest for all of the others, but he's focusing on the 11. And Judas is there, and he knows Judas's heart. He didn't commit himself to them. He didn't believe in them. And for those of you that are sitting here today, I might believe you. Your mom, dad, husband, brother, cousin, aunt, other people in this church might believe you. All the kids, every person in here might believe that you are a Christian. Jesus is not fooled. He knows you're not. And that's the one that matters. Listen to the comments throughout the gospel. You hear these often. Then those men arose, this is in John 6, 14. Then those men arose when they had seen the signs that Jesus did and said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And many of the, John 7, 31, John 7, 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man had done? John 12, 42 to 43. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's not real faith. That is not real faith. You have to confess him. And that, that's not like an extra step or you're adding to faith. No, the essence of faith is belief. I believe the facts. I agree with the facts. And I live in light of those facts. That's what faith is. Therefore, it confesses. Because if you, yeah, it confesses. He knew what was in all men. And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. This is a divine divine prerogative. Only God knows the secrets of men's hearts. And Jesus will display his ability in his dialogue with Nicodemus and with the woman at the well and in other places with his disciples and in his interaction with the Pharisees. He knows exactly what they're doing constantly because he is God. And this is a divine prerogative. So, for example, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, the Lord says this to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, speaking of David, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as men see, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's ultimately the issue. And I'll put this before every person in this room. Look, I don't know your heart. Nobody in here really knows your heart, but the Lord does. 
And that is ultimately the issue because that's who you have to do with. You don't have to do with me. Like you could come here, right? Let's say you only come on Sunday. You come here, you, 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 see, you hear me get loud and sweaty for two hours and then you leave and you don't have to put up with me anymore, right? But there's coming a day when you will have to stand before the Lord of glory and he knows the secrets of men's hearts. And you're going to say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. So the, these realities are intended, really, to, to cause us to examine ourselves, to consider our own ways. Augustine wrote this, The creator of man knew what was in man, which the created man himself knew not. There are sins that you have committed that if other people knew, they would, they would be shocked. They would think to themselves, it's unbelievable. I cannot believe this person did that. Those sins, maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years before you committed them, you probably thought to yourself, I'd never do that. I would never, not in a thousand years. And then you find yourself eating that filth. Right, committing that sin, like a pig, like a dog going back to its vomit. Right, You find yourself in that position doing that. God knew you were going to do it. You understand? Like He knows everything. We're not hiding anything from Him. You, you could play church, be friendly, give money, show up. You must be right with God. And that is... The universal human dilemma. We need a savior. We need a savior. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man because he made man. Not only did he make man, he saw man fall. And not only did he know that knew that man would fall and saw man fall, he knew he'd be the redeemer of fallen man. He knew what was in man, sin, unrighteousness. All of us need a savior. All of us are in the same dilemma. And you know what is uh, can it can be paralyzingly frightening. is that we can't save ourselves. God must do it. God must save us. And that is what Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus is all about. Nicodemus, like every person, must be born again. He must be born from above to see the kingdom of God. And next week, we'll get into the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we know, Lord God, that you reign. You are sovereign over men. You are sovereign over our salvation. That you are not a cruel potentate. 
You are not a cruel Lord and master. You are gracious and kind. And on all who receive your Son, Lord God, they receive eternal life. So help us, Lord, to deal in honesty with you. Help us to shun hypocrisy and to live in light of the reality, Lord, that you know us. And even in light of all you know about us, Lord, you are still willing and able to save us. Help us, Lord, to believe in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.